So it's the week after Easter, and we are moving into the stories and the Gospels, and the Gospel of John in particular, of the resurrected Christ. And one of the things that I want you to notice about these stories that you'll hear this week and next week is that seems that Jesus is recognized not by his face anymore, but he's recognized by his wounds. And I wonder if that is not an important thing for his followers to remember, that we can be, it's a safe place to be recognized by what pains us, by what hurts us with one another. So we're in the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John, and uh, John tells us that on the evening of the first Easter, the disciples are together in a room. They're afraid, and they've locked all the doors, and the resurrected Christ comes among them, and he says to them, peace be with you, and he shows them his hands and his side. The scripture says that the disciples then recognize him and they rejoice and Jesus breathes the creating power of the Holy Spirit upon them and they are given the power of forgiveness. So we're going to pick up there at verse 24 in the 20th chapter of John's gospel. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them. When Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands, and I put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand is in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and he stood among them, and he said, Again, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Have you ever heard it said about a person that he comes with a lot of baggage or she comes with a lot of baggage? Meaning that that person is just loaded down with some history and relationships that are burdensome or binding. Well, that's what I want you to know about Thomas. He comes with a lot of baggage. The historical church has, in our interpretation of this disciple, loaded him down with some things that hold us back from seeing who Thomas really is. So the first thing that I want to do this morning is take that baggage away from him. The very first piece of luggage that he's loaded down with is a nickname, which is ironic because John's gospel tells us his nickname, but we have given Thomas another nickname. I bet you know it. We use it negatively. We put a word in front of the name Thomas, and we usually, in front of that word, use the phrase, do not be a Doubting Thomas, you got it. Doubting Thomas, wouldn't want to be one of those. Well, the phrase Doubting Thomas came about in the early 17th century. That is well after Thomas lived and well after Jesus and the other disciples lived. And it's not too long ago from us. 
In fact, Merriam-Webster says that the first known written use of the phrase Doubting Thomas was in 1883. So that's just 130 years ago. And I'm guessing that this nickname, that this phrase, Doubting Thomas, was a response to the Enlightenment. So when one said, don't be a Doubting Thomas in the 17th century, they were really saying there are some things that are to be accepted. There are some things that are to be just assumed without proof. Or maybe they were saying some truths are not to be disproved. Don't be a doubting Thomas. Okay, so that may in itself be true, that there are some things that are just known true, that are just right. But I want you to see that that struggle is bound by a time frame of the Enlightenment. And I hate to see it stuck on Thomas, and I hate to see it stuck on us as well. Because here's the thing. I don't think that Jesus would ever have said to the other disciples, Don't be like Thomas. The scripture doesn't tell us that he says that. And in fact, I think that Jesus is just fine answering Thomas's questions. Which leads me to the second piece of baggage that I think Thomas is loaded up with. And that is tone. Okay, when I talk about tone, what I mean is the attitude that is portrayed when these stories about Thomas are read. Tone is actually not a part of the Bible. None of it, none of the Bible that I can think of is written in the form of a script. Now Job, the Old Testament book of Job may be pretty close, but even Job doesn't have those parentheses that say, read this line with great sarcasm or read this line with great sorrow. Now we do that. We take that to the text. So often when these passages of Thomas are read, and there are three passages in John's gospel where Thomas speaks, Thomas is read as depressed or fatalistic or just plain stupid. And I don't think any of those three are the case. Now you'll recognize one of those scenes where Thomas speaks. It's the 14th chapter of the gospel of John, and Jesus has gathered his disciples For the Passover meal, and Jesus says to them, you know the way to the place where I am going. And then Thomas speaks, and he says, Lord, how can we know the way? And Jesus' response is 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the end of that passage, sometimes when I hear someone read that passage, 14 verse 6, or maybe even sometimes when I've read it, it's almost as if you you could add the word duh to the end of it. Duh, Thomas, don't you get it? I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But I don't think that's the right way to read that passage. This scene in chapter 20, we might add an eye roll to it. This passage where Jesus says, because you have seen me, Thomas, and believed, blessed are those who don't see me, I roll and believe. But that's not in the passage. That I roll is not in the passage. Jesus is not suggesting to Thomas that those who come after are better than Thomas seeing and believing. But I think instead those who come after, as in you and me, are being encouraged 
that we will not see and yet we will believe. Jesus doesn't ever shame his disciples. And Jesus is not shaming Thomas in this scene. But I believe Jesus is giving Thomas what he needs for faith. You know, it's not unusual for Jesus to give what is needed for faith in the gospel story. It's happened before. He gave the woman at the well in dialogue and in questions exactly what she needed for faith. He healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years, exactly what he needed for faith. He gives sight to one who is born blind. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And the result in each of these Bible stories is that faith is increased. There is a pattern to Jesus providing what is needed for faith. And Thomas, I believe, is a part of that pattern. Thomas needs directions. In the 14th chapter, Jesus gives him directions. Thomas needs to see the wounds, to feel the wounds, and Jesus gives him that opportunity, that experience. The story of Thomas, I believe, read clearly, asks the question of all of us, what is it that you need for faith that you're not asking for? What is it that you need for an increase in faith that you're not asking for? Ask for it. Because we have a Savior that doesn't shame or assume. We have a Savior that provides for what we need when we ask for it. It is one of the pinnacles, I believe, of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus turns to his followers and he says, If your child asks for a piece of bread... You don't give him a stone. If your child asks for a fish, you don't give her a snake. But instead, you give good things to your children. How much more does your Father in heaven give good things to you? Everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who knocks, the door is opened. So ask. Ask. Ask for what you need. It will be provided. Now, the asking is not... For God's benefit. It's not so that God can know exactly what we need. God knows what we need. The asking is for you. And the asking is for me. For my own clarity. When what I need begins to take shape in my mind. And on my lips. Then I can recognize. That need being met. I can recognize what is provided. I can recognize the answer to my questions. We get hung up, I think, in this passage with verse 27. That's where the word doubt appears. In verse 27, Jesus says to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. A more literal translation of that verse into English is probably don't be unbelieving, but believing. But even when it's translated as doubt... I don't believe that this is a reprimand. As, part, as much as it is just Jesus admitting that doubt, that asking is a part of the process. Chase that rabbit trail because where it ends is a good place. Where it ends is provision. Where it ends is stronger relationship. Doubting will lead you to what you need for faith. It will lead you to name that need and then that need will be answered. 
Peter Enns, who is a theologian, has a new book coming out next week. And the title of his new book is The Sin of Certainty. The Sin of Certainty. Where he claims that faith is defined not by what you're certain about, but it's defined by who you trust. Faith is defined by the relationship, by who you trust. I am convinced that in order to doubt, you have to trust. Because doubt is a stance of vulnerability. We have in our house a a chihuahua (laughs) dog. And um, our chihuahua is named Bean. I didn't name her. (laughs) But it is what it is. She is who she is. And she has two different ways of interacting with the world. There is the bean that comes charging in in the morning, barking and growling through the house, very certain about what she wants, very territorial. She's racing the Labrador to either the, the house shoe that she covets or a chewy that she's buried in somebody's closet. That bean we call mean bean. But there is another face of bean. There is bean at night. Bean at night jumps up on the couch and she curls up next to whoever else is on the couch and she rolls over on her back so that the person that she's next to can scratch her belly, whatever itch she's got, she wants it scratched. That's the vulnerable bean and that's the bean that I prefer. (laughs) Trusting, showing me the itch that she needs scratched. That's, I believe, what God wants from us. God wants from us that relationship that trusts, that relationship that puts God in charge, that relationship that says, this is what I need to grow in faith, and I believe that you will give it to me. Maybe not in this moment, but eventually you'll provide. Thomas gets what he needs. And he gets what he asks for. Thomas says, I need to see the marks of the nails. And I need to put my hands in where those nails were. And I need to put my hand in his side. And then Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand in my side. The need is met exactly in this passage. And I think that's what we're supposed to see. Not that Thomas doubts, but that Thomas names exactly what he needs, and then Jesus provides exactly what Thomas names. Thomas's response to being provided for is this. Thomas looks at Jesus, and he says, My Lord and my God. And I don't want you to miss the power of that declaration. N.T. Wright points out that Thomas is the first person, and we're at the end of the gospel here. Thomas is the first person to look at Jesus and say, God. We've been on this trajectory from the very beginning of John's gospel. Remember the very first verse in John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. But it's not until we get to chapter 20 That somebody looks at Jesus and says, you are my Lord and you are my God. 
we come full circle. Thomas gets it right. And while we're on the topic of circles, let's talk about the circle of community that surrounds Thomas. Did you notice in this passage, the beginning part of this passage, the disciples are gathered together, but Thomas isn't there when the resurrected Christ first appears? So here's what doesn't happen. When Thomas isn't there, then Jesus goes and finds Thomas out isolated by himself and reveals himself to Thomas. No, that's not what happens. What happens is a week later, the disciples gather together again, and the resurrected Christ appears then when Thomas is there. Thomas states what he needs. Jesus gives him exactly what he needs. We are living in a time when what counts as worship, worshipful and what counts as faithful is being redefined for Christians. Some of that, I think, has to do with the fact that the church in the 20th century acted in ways that were hurtful and harmful to the people who gathered in Jesus' name. Some of that has to do with the new information age that we live in, where with the help of the Internet, I can find out all that I need to know about the disciple Thomas. I don't need to come to church and listen to some minor theologian talk about Thomas because I can do the research on my own. <laughs> Here's the one thing that I know will be true as church is redefined. There is a significant piece to church in the idea that the faithful gather together in Jesus' name. There is an important piece of the fellowship coming together one with another. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, Don't neglect to meet together as followers of Christ, because when you meet together, you can provoke each other to good deeds. And I really like that passage of Scripture, because here what, here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say when you get together, it's going to be really like comfortable and a warm fuzzy feeling and you're going to feel real good but it uses that hebrews chapter 10 uses the word provoke so it's almost as if our rough spots are going to come together in community and as we come together in community we can encourage and provoke one another to do what god has called you to do now john makes certain that we know G that we know Thomas's real nickname. Uh, it wasn't in the passage that we read, but the Aramaic is Didymus, and it literally means the twin. Interesting to me this week, I discovered that the name Thomas is a Greek name that also comes from an Aramaic word, and guess what it means? It also means twin. So as John writes this gospel, and every time that Thomas speaks, we get Thomas, the twin. So John says to us, Thomas, or John says to us, the disciple, the twin twin. It's important that you get this, that Thomas is a twin. Very significant. I wonder, who is Thomas a twin to? I guess I have always assumed that Thomas's twin was some, some unnamed girl or guy. He just wasn't one of the followers of Christ. 
Now, some think that Thomas may be a look-alike or a twin of Jesus. Some have speculated that. It's a stretch. But, you know, it wasn't too long ago that my friend Ginger would go and pick up my son Daniel at uh, Northwood Elementary. It was just a year before last that she would go pretty regularly. And when uh, Daniel would be loaded into her car, the teacher who would put him in Ginger's car would say, Thank you, Mrs. Shelley. And then when I would come the next day, he would say, Oh, you got a new car. No, same car, different person. We spend a lot of time together, so maybe we look alike. (laughs) I get that many of us look like our spouses, our family members, those whom we love. And maybe that's what's going on with Thomas. Maybe Thomas looks like Jesus because he loves Jesus, because he follows Jesus, because he's close to Jesus. But maybe what John wants us to see Maybe what John wants us to know is that Thomas is your twin. Thomas is my twin. Thomas is being held up as an image of the faithful followers of Christ. Trusting, asking for what they need, and believing. It is an image worth duplicating. Will you pray with me? Eternal God, we thank you, we bless you, and we praise you this day because you are creator God, creating the world that we live in uh, this day and every day. We thank you that uh, you created redemption by sending your son to be our Lord and Savior and that on the night before he gave himself up for us, our Lord and Savior, took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood, a new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So almighty God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come upon this bread And this cup, make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your Holy Spirit, make us one with you, one with each other, and one in service to all the world. Until Christ comes in his final victory, and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Amen. I would ask those who are helping to serve communion to come forward at this time. And you should know that uh, we take communion by intinction which means that you'll be given a piece of the bread, and you take that bread, dip it into the cup, and place it into your mouth. All are invited to come and take part of communion. No one is excluded. The table is set. Our hearts are prepared. Won't you come and recognize the body of Christ this day?